Hello, Internet, and welcome to a very special episode of Shortbox Summary. I'm your host, George, and I'm joined by one of my favorite peoples on the planet. I always talk about Jackalope. Uh, we talked about that a lot, especially on the movie podcast, because we got Marty and Aaron, who are people I met at Jackalope. I got someone else I met at Jackalope. I got my good friend, Sean. Sean, how are you doing? Hello, hello, George. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm really glad this worked out. I'm glad that you're a nerd and I was able to to talk to you about comics and actually get you to appear on the show. That's incredibly exciting for me. I am a nerd and you have popped another one of my nerd cherries here with uh, X-Men. Ooh, yeah. I met Sean at Jackalope. We were waiting in line. I was wearing a backwards NFL team hat. He was wearing a Ravens jersey and he looked at me and he just started shaking his head. He's just like, what hat is that? And I slowly turn my bill around and he sees the logo to the New England Patriots. And uh, we should have hated each other. You know, it should have been just uh, it should have been nemesis realizing each other for the first time. But instead, cooler heads prevailed. I like to pride myself in being a non-douchey Patriots fan. And uh, I like to... Think of Sean as a non-douchey Ravens fan. We acknowledge that our teams are forever entwined. The probably like one of the bigger rivalries in the NFC or in the AFC, and we can acknowledge that we wouldn't be as great without the other. So, and I think also our shared love of the OC helped uh, build some of those bridges too. That smooths a lot of wrinkles. Turns out, if you like the OC, I probably like a lot about you as a as a human being. I think that shows really. It's a good test of character. Oh, yeah. No, we actually just talked about it. You haven't heard this episode yet because I haven't published it yet. But we just talked about the OC because one of the writers for the OC started writing a comic called Young Avengers. Oh, well, I'm adding that to my list then. All right. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's quit beating around the bush here. We are here to talk about Astonishing X-Men, a series from 2004. It was written by Joss Whedon, who is... Revealed recently not to be a great dude. Nothing we can do. This was an important book. Uh, We talked about Brian Singer on the X-Men podcast. Same sort of deal where we're just going to have to separate the art from the artist. It was drawn by John Cassidy, who I think for my money is one of the best comic book artists of all time and colored by Laura Martin. Sean, what's your experience with comics before we even jump into that book? what, what, What do you like about the medium? Right. So it's something... I'm fairly new to probably about a year actually reading it. It's been something that I've always uh, it's kind of like that crush in school that I'm always scared to approach, you know, the the one that I'm scared (laughs) to talk to in the hallway and will hide when, when they're walking down. I, it's something that it can be very overwhelming for people that are new to the medium. And I love video games, um, love superhero movies, TV shows, things like that. And I, it got to a point where I was at a break between Marvel movies and I, and I needed more Marvel. So I said, you know what, I'm going to jump into this. I had talked to you about it a while uh, when I was in San Francisco and you sent me a few recommendations. I still kind of dipped my foot in and then got a little overwhelmed, but I decided to dive head first last year and haven't really looked back since. Very cool. Uh, that's really exciting, man. You're like the the unicorn that Marvel Studios is looking for. Someone who goes to the movies and then ends up buying the comics after. Yeah, I think it, for me, um, it, it's been really interesting because it's funny. Most of the comics I've gravitated towards since starting have not been Marvel comics. 
Uh, oh, really? I, I actually have really gravitated towards a lot of image comics. Um, Sex Criminals is one series that I started reading that I really, really enjoyed and wouldn't have thought of it. It's a hilarious premise. Um, but I do really like some Marvel. And um, one of the big ones I started reading was Miles Morales and really dug into that. Um, and this is actually my first foray into X-Men. Very cool. I was reading a bunch of random X-Men comics as a kid. I was just kind of pulling stuff off the shelf because it was the mid-90s. And then it was the late 90s. And I was just gravitated towards cool covers. And it turns out if you're someone who's got like insane hair and giant samurai swords coming out of your hands, uh, a seven-year-old's going to think you're cool. And yeah, just grabs yeah, just grab stuff off the shelf with the with that picture on it. But Astonishing X-Men was the first comic that I started reading on a monthly basis. So if you were confused, 14-year-old George, hella confused. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to do a little, little legwork first. Okay, awesome. Some small explanations, because I do want to cover this stuff eventually on the later pod. I wanted to plant a flag and just move forward in terms of stories, but, and I thought this was the best place to to sort of do that with the X-Men. That said, there's just like a kick-ass X-Men run that happens just before this that was unfortunately happening just a little too early from the stories I want to talk about first. And so I'm going to have to talk about that one retrospectively, retroactively in a later episode. And that may stitch up some of the questions I have. There, there's only a few going into it, but uh, this does seem like a pretty decent jumping off point, And you do get still the very cool 90s 2000s uh, costumes of the yeah you do all right so just before this story there was an extended run on a book called new x-men by grant morrison and several artists uh, too many to name here also some of them have turned out to be bad people so don't want to give them more attention than i want to uh or sorry more attention than i have to and that is like one of the best X-Men runs of all time. It is absolutely batshit insane. Grant Morrison is one of the most gifted but confusing writers to have ever <laughs> worked in the medium of comics. And their run actually was informed by a crossover called Apocalypse the 12 right before. That happened in the year 2000. New X-Men came out in 2001. And the way Marvel sort of operates, there's a bunch of different X-Men books. There was, at the time, Uncanny X-Men, which was the main series going all the way back to 1963 and then there was a second series that started in i believe 1990 called x-men and that was like the basis for the 1994 animated series that i think everyone remembers fondly from their childhood and the way it works is there's usually there's multiple x books but there's usually only one main one and that's the one that's like moving the story of the main characters forward and so for a while it was uncanny then it became the second series x-men and then they rebranded X-Men as new X-Men right after the movie and gave them new costumes and a new direction. And then that run ended. And then it seemed like the X-Men were going to be a little rudderless, except astonishing X-Men debuted on May 26, 2004. And then this became the main X-Men comic for probably like two or three years. And then it shifted back to uncanny X-Men once they had a big status quo shift that moved them from New York to San Francisco. But Hey, getting ahead of myself. So let's just talk about Astonishing X-Men. Sounds good. Let's jump in. All right. Uh, it begins as a horror comic, as we see blood and darkness and sinister teeth as something not human, but absolutely terrifying. We're seeing something between a nightmare and a memory, when suddenly a young girl wakes up screaming for someone named Vita, 
and a woman in a lab coat reassures a screaming child named Tildy that it was just a dream and nothing will come back to hurt her. In the next scene, we see Kitty Pride returning to the X-Mansion. Her narration says the place was destroyed and now it looks like nothing happened. No time has passed. The X-Mansion is blown up constantly, just all the freaking time. And that happened in one of the later stories that Grant Morrison told in New X-Men. And she is commenting on the cyclical nature of comics. X-Mansion always blows up. It always comes back. This is one thing that I think I've always kind of questioned about superheroes because I mean, Batman, I feel like did it right when he had a cave, you know, and kept himself kind of hidden. Mm-hmm. A lot of these superheroes kind of, you have Avengers tower, which is right in your face. I have a feeling a lot of supervillains know where, you know, the X-Men are hanging out at. They don't really try to hide it, you know? So I feel like it would become a big target. Yeah, uh, it absolutely does. Especially with Grant Morrison's story, it was sort of like a corrupted from within, I guess is how I'll say it and, and be mysterious about it. Grant Morrison to their credit did a real push to move Xavier school for gifted youngsters, which was basically just like the, it was like a fake school where Xavier taught all these students as teenagers. Then they became like a superhero team and like a big soap opera. And that was what people liked about the book, but Grant Morrison turned it back into a school. And so this is like one of the first times we're seeing like an active class schedule and a big focus is on some of the younger mutants. They talk about a few of them. We see some scenes with a few of them in this opening story, but then in later stories and in other series, uh, we spend a lot more time with them. I personally have really liked this one book called the new mutants from 2003. I think that one is super fun. And then that turns into a new book called new X-Men comics are so confusing, man. It, it, like it's everything has the same name, but it's widely different. You just have to double check the publication year to make sure you're going in the right direction. Usually what I do is just shoot you a text. That's also a pretty safe bet. Hit up at purplebird616 on Twitter. If you're listening to this and not sure where to start with a story that you really want to get to, I will tell you the sequence of books, which ones are necessary, which ones you can cut out, and how to get to the story you want to read fastest. Now, George, one thing here I was wondering is where where is Professor X at the start here? All right. So Professor X is currently indisposed of he's in this place called genosha in the very first story of grant morrison's tenure a mega sentinel shows up to this island country of genosha where 16 million mutants are living and just murders all of them there's like a dozen survivors basically and so it has become like it, it, it looks like a nuclear bomb went off there and so xavier went through so much during morrison's run that by the end of it he goes there and he is working with other mutants who survived there. And we talked about Avengers disassembled and what happened to the Scarlet Witch. And he's also working to try to fix her being like therapist, being counselor, trying to help her get over her, her panic attacks, her, her mood swings and her reality altering powers. So he took a leave of absence. He's on sabbatical. That's a far cry. I thought I was picturing him somewhere on an island, sipping on Mai Tais. He can send his hologram over to the school, take care of everything remote. No, no, unfortunately not. A little different, okay. It's a little heavy, yeah. As Kitty walks up to the steps of the entrance, she looks over and sees her own memory of first approaching the mansion and meeting Professor X. Kitty Pride has the ability to face through matter, and instead of walking through the door, she walks through the wall next to the door. As she transitions, she sees a memory of her calling Professor Xavier a jerk and storming out, as seen in Uncanny X-Men 168 from all the way back in 1983. 
just after Kitty had joined the X-Men and the New Mutants. She's having all sorts of flashbacks to when she was a kid being in these halls. It shows growth, uh, it shows maturity, it shows character evolution, something that isn't present in a lot of comics by design. We see her flirting with Colossus, her ex-boyfriend who sacrificed himself to rid the world of this thing called the Legacy Virus, a pathogen specifically designed to kill mutants. And someone had to offer themselves up to make all mutants immune. And uh, Peter Rasputin, Colossus, did just that. And he died. That was from Uncanny X-Men 390 back in March 2001. And she is haunted by these memories as she returns to the mansion. Phasing through the school, she ends up in the Danger Room, a holographic training room for the X-Men, where she finds the school assembled and being lectured by Emma Frost. They exchange heat because of past relationships, and it's clear they don't like each other. Emma continues addressing the students, calling for respect of the teachers, calling for respect of humans. Hank McCoy, better known as Beast, Scott Summers, better known as Cyclops, and Logan, better known as Wolverine, though he's currently elsewhere, saying, you gotta take care of these people so they can take care of you. As she's addressing the students, three sentinels come crashing through the ceiling. The X-Men react to protect their students when Emma halts the danger room and stops the sentinels in their tracks. We have learned the first lesson, she says. They will always hate us. We will never live in a world of peace, which is why control and nonviolence are essential. We must prove ourselves a peaceful people. We must give the ordinary humans respect, compliance, and understanding. And we must never mistake that for trust. Later in their shared room, Scott tells Emma, they're dating, by the way, uh, he deserved warning of the stunt she was going to pull. She says she did it to scan the students and reveals that more than 10% of them were into the idea of a fight and she wanted to know. She doubles down that she is not Xavier and she's going to do things differently. The so next, George, oh, sorry. Can, yeah. Can you give me a little bit of explanation? Of what is the danger room? The danger room was originally like a training room for... Okay for the X-Men. So it was like an obstacle course that had like flamethrowers and like spinning knives, just like every dumb Rube Goldberg machine that like Tom and Jerry ever went through or like Wiley Coyote ever made. It was basically that. And then it got so advanced so fast and it eventually just became like the holodeck from Star Trek where you could manifest accurate, hard light representations of real threats. So like if you want to fight the juggernaut, you could fight a version of the juggernaut in this room. Okay. So, so I, that's how she was able to make the Sentinels appear and make it seem like it was really happening. I'm venturing a guess that this isn't the only issue that the Danger Room may cause in X-Men history here. No, 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 no. There's a lot of Danger Room stuff. And actually, Danger Room sh- shows up pretty prominently throughout this run, too. So that's something to look forward to. I think the next issue is actually all about the Danger Room and how weird of a concept it is. Very cool. The next morning, Scott and Emma wake up to Wolverine above their bed, and he's giving Scott shit about having Emma in bed, asking which stage of grief he's in. This is referencing Jean dying at the end of Grant Morrison's run, where she technically died twice, once in New X-Men 148, and again in New X-Men 150. Again, comics are so dumb. That's why I love them so much. And I cannot recommend Grant Morrison's run enough. It is uncanny, or New X-Men 150. 15 112 somewhere around there to like 155 i think in new x-men annual 2001 again we're gonna talk about that on the show because it's really cool but uh for now astonishing x-men is where we're at uh let's see it's really confusing dumb comic book stuff i think for me here it was we'll just leave it at that (laughs) yeah trying to uh understand a little bit of the uh kinky eavesdropping of logan there was Mm -hmm. uh uh was a new side of him that i hadn't seen before 
Logan, like they kind of talk about this a little bit in the X-Men movies from 2000, but like Logan, it was just like so in love with Jean and she was just so in love with Scott. So it was like a weird triangle. And sometimes Logan was like the perfect partner for her, but she was loyal to Scott. Other times Scott was like the perfect partner to to Logan. Like, like everyone just had like such like a deep relationship with each other. I'm not implying that like Logan and Wolverine were in love with each other. Maybe they were. I, I don't know. Sorry. Uh, Scott and Wolverine were in love with each other. Maybe. I don't know. I'm not qualified as like a a, <laughs> a, a, a therapist to, to make that call. But you never know. Comics, you know. Uh, but uh, Wolverine is very protective of Jean and her memory of Jean. So he is pissed as hell. And Scott blasts him out the window using his super cool power to shoot concussive blasts out of his eyes. They fight on the front yard of Xavier Mansion, arguing about who cared for Jean more. Emma is pissed. She comments to a now present beast that she's a fucking knockout, but still doesn't compare to Scott's dead wife, Jean. The staff meeting is called in the danger room and Scott lays it all out. Quote, it's about everything. Truth, perception. We've saved the world, worlds even, time and again. That's the truth. That's what we do. But the perception is we're freaks or worse, that we're magnetos waiting to happen. We've been taking it on the chin for so long, just trying to keep the world from being wiped out. I think we've forgotten that we have a purpose. I know the rest of the world has forgotten. Kitty laments what the danger room used to be. Again, flamethrowers and an obstacle, of course. Just commenting on how weird it is that they're in like an off-scale version of the Hawaiian archipelago. Like, that's where they're chilling right now in the danger room as they go through this little group therapy session in powwow. Uh, Scott continues, the point is simply this. We need to get into the world, saving lives, helping with disaster relief. We need to present ourselves as a team like any other. Avengers, Fantastic Four, they don't get chased through the streets with torches. Quite frankly, all the black leather is making people nervous. This is a direct reference to the new costumes the team wore during Grant Morrison's run on New X-Men, where they were wearing black leather tracksuits, basically with yellow X highlights, which in turn was a compromise of how they dressed from the movies from 2000 and X2 from 2003 where they just kind of did away with costumes altogether and just threw them in black jumpsuits. Kitty immediately raises a fuss, saying she's not a fighter. Logan sticks up for her against herself, uh, saying he'd fight with her any day. And Scott logics that her power is defensive and people should see a hero that isn't there to be a fighter. They're bickering constantly about what value they each bring to a team, but Scott reassures them that he selected them all for a reason. Kitty laments that Lockheed, her pet dragon, hasn't shown up, but thinks it's a matter of time. That's not a metaphor. She has an actual purple pet dragon. And suddenly, we're in another place entirely, and the woman in the lab coat who is comforting Tildy is about to go on stage with the young girl, and while getting nervous, she's assured they'll be together. She's introduced as Kativa Rao, a doctor of genetics. Elsewhere, a gala of well-dressed people is interrupted by gunmen, telling them to hit the ground. Their leader emerges. He's green-skinned with a strange piece of tech covering his face over the bridge of his nose. Think like the Geordie glasses from Star Trek, but lower. Dr. Rao continues, saying that mutants are people, no better or worse than anyone else, just disease with an affliction from birth that they never chose. She announces something incredible, something astonishing. They have found a cure for mutants, and the world will never be the same. The X-Men dress in their new uniforms, more in line with how they were before the Morrison run. And it's something of a cross between modern day costumes and like the 1994 costumes from the cartoon. And uh, they get in the Blackbird, their subsonic jet, and head off to deal with a hostage crisis. And that is the end of issue one. That was your first X-Men comic. What'd you think? Uh, I, I liked it. It was cool. I thought a few things. I thought the the art style was awesome. 
Um, one thing for me that really is kind of make or break on whether if I find a comic and I decide to read it on my own without any recommendation, it's kind of looking at the art. Some of mm-hmm. the older stuff, for some reason to me, has been a turnoff, but um, this has got a modern take on it, but still kind of keeps some of the old school feel on certain panels, which I thought was really cool. Um, another thing I realized, and I don't know if this is of the era, maybe you can tell me, but were all the artists this horny? There's a lot of cleavage <laughs> in this, especially with Emma. And I feel like they, they took, they tried to uh, get that in as much as possible. All the artists were this horny. Everyone was beautiful. There was sexual tension overflowing in every panel, which I find really interesting because that's like one criticism I keep seeing with the Marvel movies is that everyone's beautiful, but nobody fucks. You know, like there's just like not a lot of sexual tension. Yeah. And like I talked about this with Fabio where it's like the Olympic Village, like every athlete is just like boning constantly. Like they just go through like so many boxes of condoms, (laughs) like so many thousands of condoms at like every Olympic Village. The, yeah, these are all no... people at the peak of their physical presentation, I guess. And like, these people are no different really. And like they, they bone in the comics, but not in the movies, which I think is really funny. Would love to see like a bachelor bachelorette style, like tell all at the end of, you know, the, the run. So you can, know uh, all, yeah, all the be, superheroes are saying what's going on. Um, the last question I had, and if we're going to cover it coming up here, um, don't worry about it. But it, could you give me a brief rundown about Emma's past a little bit? Uh, you know, you can kind of tell through this that Kitty and her have a little bit of beef going on, um, even just through some of the images without any of the dialogue going on, you know, when when they're changing into their u- uniforms, which that final page is awesome. Um, but when they're changing in there, you can see Kitty's kind of giving her like a roll of the eyes as she's changing. And yeah. I'm not going to talk about that now. I got a little paragraph in the script a little bit later to talk about that. But just know Emma, the first time we ever met Emma Frost, she was a villain in the comics. Okay, cool. And then she was sort of reluctantly became a hero and just sort of, I I guess like, what's it like evolution or revolution where she'd just been like around so long that everything she tried to do as a villain was just like recontextualized. It's like, oh, that actually wasn't that bad. Like your goal was good. Your, your execution of it was bad, you know? Yeah. And there is actually around this time, there was a mini series, I guess, or like three. There's an 18 issue run about an Emma Frost comic. And one series talked about her in high school. One series talked about her in middle school. One series talked about her in college. And she's always presented as like this British ice queen, you know. Mm -hmm. But then like this comic takes place in like Western Massachusetts, Eastern Massachusetts. Central Massachusetts, I guess we call that Central Massachusetts. And it's just like, oh, you're just like some rich kid from like one of the wealthiest suburbs in, in Massachusetts, which is one of the wealthiest suburbs of the country. It's like, okay, this is weird. So it's a little confusing. I don't okay. know if that was like a, an editorial mistake, but she like how British does she sound throughout this entire book? Yeah, yeah, I get that. Uh, um, so she's she's kind of a confusing character, but she used to be a villain and she was brought on to be kind of like a love triangle between Scott and Emma or sorry, between Scott and Jean in the new X-Men run, Jean died. And so they like Scott kind of like cheated on Jean with Emma during that run, like mentally and had been like flirting with, with Emma. And so that was kind of like the nail in their coffin of their relationship between Scott and Jean. And then now he's just with her now that Jean's dead. Cool. Okay. I, I, um, the 
I'm realizing that affairs with superheroes, there's much more layers than uh, in real life here. Yeah. The, <laughs> the other thing is th- this this evil guy that we see here. I know he's he's not named here in the first issue. Mm-hmm. Um, are we familiar with him in X Men lore prior to this, or is he no. a new guy? Completely new creation. So this samurai turtle looking guy, uh, who looks like Donatello. With an yeah. angel problem. Yeah, without the shell. That's, yeah. Okay. Cool. That is such a great way to put it. I think uh, subconsciously, I made. Yeah, subconsciously, I completely understand that, but I never put two and two together. But that is such a great way to describe them. <laughs> uh, issue two came out June twenty third, two thousand three. I'm bringing up these dates because we talked about a lot of books that have gotten delayed, and John Cassidy, uh, an incredibly talented artist, and for at least his first arc. None of the books were delayed. Everything showed up on time each month, which is just incredible, especially considering he was also pulling art duties on a book called Planetary, which had been held up because the writer had gotten sick. Planetary is one of my favorite books ever, but no time to talk about that now. This is really cool because, sorry, George, he he does, he seems to do a lot of almost different art styles within each issue, which is kind of cool. And and in the start of this issue, it looks a little different here on the first page than it does the second. I thought that was really cool. I think he's like one of the smartest artists because like he <laughs> rhymes. Uh, he knows exactly when to emphasize detail and when to do like a weird minimalist interpretation of events. But like still manages like there's so many scenes where like there's a fight and there's no background. There's just like a solid block of color, you know, just to highlight the actual choreography of the fight. And then you're in a living room that looks like it's just like a colored picture of of a living room, you know, like everything just looks picturesque, perfect, but there's nothing superfluous about it. You know, like it just looks exactly real just with, you know, comic book coloring added on top of it. Uh, Super fascinating art style and such a weird interpretation. Also, like he's so heavy with the Dutch angles, you know, where it's just like, yeah, something's at like a 45 degree angle, but like he still manages to see so much like he just he really understands how to play with space. And like uh, like page real estate, I think he's really effective at it. I, I was really digging it, and as somebody that's kind of new into this comic books, um, the like I said, the art style is really kind of what brings me in or what turns me off from it. And I, it was really cool and definitely drew me in to keep going. You remember when you were a kid and you were playing a video game like on PlayStation Two, and you're just like, "Holy crap! Like it'll never like I can't believe how good this looks. Video games will never look better." was just having a conversation about this yes yeah so that was kind of how i felt because like i'd had a bunch of like older comics and then i had a bunch of like really old comics and then i had this and it's just like how can you get better than john cassidy like it's like it's like impossible to look better than this and honestly 20 years later i think the way you look better than john cassidy is by like having like a weirder art style like i think there's other Mm -hmm. artists where like i would maybe read their books before a John Cassidy book, just because I'm like, oh, this person does like really weird proportions with bodies. And I think that's interesting. So I'm going to read this first, but like more times than not, I'm going to read the the Cassidy book first, just because it's so darn pretty. So I don't know a ton about comic book culture. Is it something like in music where artists will say, oh, I'm influenced by so-and-so and and this person and this person, or is that, yeah. Is, so yeah, is they, he an artist that's usually, you know, referenced when it comes to that? Um, not as much 
like people talk usually when they talk about comics they talk about like 70s and 80s influences okay and i think that's just because of the amount of comic book artists like i I feel like there's just like not a lot of comic book artists in their 20s right now okay and so like they're usually older a little bit more established and like they just grew up like loving stuff from the 80s and honestly like i feel like a lot of the writers are younger so that's why like they're constantly referencing stuff from the 90s and so i think it is just really like a generational thing where i don't think we're too far off from comic book artists referencing john cassidy is like the reason they got into it you know but we're still kind of in the era of like people saying Jim Lee on Uncanny X Men, right, you know, who is right, like right. one of the one of the more famous artists. But it's only a matter of time. Got it. All right, ready to talk about issue two? Let's do it. All right, issue two opens with body cam footage of officers going to a domestic disturbance call. Doctor Rao reveals that this is a call for Tildy Soames, the young girl having nightmares in the first issue. Apparently, her mutant powers make her nightmares manifest in the real world, and those nightmares took her parents' lives, as well as the life of one officer at the scene. Her guardians allowed Dr. Rao to work on a cure that could eliminate the mutant strain from her and make her safe to re-enter society. The X-Men from the Blackbird are taking stock of the hostage situation they're about to walk into. Logan immediately points out their right flank is open, showing his mind for battlefield strategy. Once the X-Jet lands, he comments... Uh, sorry, once the X-Jet lands, the leader of the gunman comments how a single moth would have made more noise than the jet. So we get the feeling that he's a pro at the very least. His crew is fired up. They're getting gung-ho about taking on mutants. Kitty dips in and starts sneaking out hostages, using her power to phase through solid objects. Emma immediately starts using her psychic powers to start messing with these guys. The leader tells them to set up their scramblers to keep an edge. All the while, Kitty sneaks out more and more hostages. Once there's a more clear room, the X-Men enter, immediately taking out the guards. All of a sudden, it's just the X-Men and the single, auspicious green leader. This dude starts fighting the X-Men single-handedly and more than holds his own. He introduces himself as Ord of Breakworld. He beats down all the X-Men with no real effort and thinks the battle is over when Lockheed, Kitty's pet dragon, shows up out of nowhere and just roasts his ass, setting his head on fire and blasting him out of a window. Scott admits they got thrashed, but now they do the hard part, PR control. They leave the event and are met by dozens of reporters with camera flashbulbs bursting like it's the Big Bang. He assures them this isn't mutant related and they showed up simply because people needed help. The reporters are being weird and shitty, asking all kinds of questions. And besides knowing what happened, we immediately side with the X-Men on the scene because they're the only normal seeming ones around. Finally, one of the reporters asks Beast, the resident scientist of the X-Men, what his thoughts are on the mutant cure. And he has no idea what they're talking about. And as readers, we piece together that this whole hostage situation was a distraction. Back at the expansion, the team is trying to figure out what their next steps are. They can't decide if this cure is credible, but Hank knows Dr. Rao and says there's a very good chance that she can do what she claims. Emma suggests killing her, and Logan is more than on board. Since he isn't confident, they can tell the difference between mutant DNA and mutant proper. Logan catches up to the idea that it isn't a coincidence that they were fighting Ord while this cure was announced. They call it a night and Emma asks for Kitty's help talking to the students who are freaking out about the idea of a cure. Emma tells Kitty that the reason she's on the team is her insistence. She's fought alongside everyone else recently, again, in Morrison's run, and wanted someone skeptical of her to watch her and keep her honest. Kitty puts it all in the line and sums up her distrust of Emma. Quote, the first time I ever met the X-Men, the first day, they were ambushed and captured and caged by you. I learned more about good and evil in that one day than I ever have before or since. I was 13. 
When I think about evil, whenever I think about the concept of evil, yours is the face I see. I don't have to watch you, Miss Frost. I can smell you. This is referencing Uncanny X-Men 129 from back in 1980. It's when Emma was part of the Hellfire Club, a secret cabal of extremely powerful and dangerous mutants who tried to manipulate Jean Grey as she was becoming the Phoenix and everything went ass up. Like she was having mental breakdowns. She didn't understand what was real and what wasn't because of this mutant called Mastermind, who was also part of the Hellfire Club. And this led to her having like a breakdown where she like forced a star to go supernova in deep space and killed 6 billion people on a planet. Oh, shit. And then she was like sentenced for death by the Shi'ar empire who uh, like knew about the Phoenix force. Like it's like, it's called the dark Phoenix saga. They lightly touch on it in X-Men three, the last stand. I, I cannot recommend that interpretation of the Phoenix saga. Uh, but the dark Phoenix saga is one of the most important X-Men comics of all time. And so that is, uh, that's what uh, what Kitty's referencing right now to, to Emma. Later that night, Beast sneaks into the labs of Benetech, the pharmaceutical wing that uh, Dr. Kavita Rao is working for and confronts her. She's expecting a real fight, but instead she meets an exasperated, defeated man who just wants to know if she's really found a cure. That is the end of issue two. How are we feeling? Third of the way through the story, how are we feeling, Sean? Good. Definitely have a few questions, though. Hit me up. Uh, first of all, how the hell did Kitty get a dragon? That is a great question that I actually don't know the answer to. They <laughs> Lockheed shows up more in this particular run, and we get some background on Lockheed. So that just became my my baseline for everything I know about Lockheed. Okay. And then the other thing, I, I'm, this issue especially is starting to really have me pull for Beast. I really am starting to like him. Mm-hmm. I'm loving that this big boy is so aerodynamic, you know, zipping through the lasers to get into the lab yeah. um, and talk to the doctor. And then I love his line of, you know, there's simply no etiquette nowadays. That was awesome when he pulled that one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last thing that really kind of dawned on me and it kind of goes into my whole strategy with uh, where you're going to have your hideout and everything like that is the X-Men really definitely need a PR person. Um, I personally am a PR professional who's looking for a job. So wondering where I can apply for that role. Well, you're in uh, the tri-state area, right? So like you're, you're, you're local. Yeah. I, I mean, or I can hop on a train commute. It's not that big of a deal, but sure. Yeah. They definitely need somebody to handle uh, no, no, you know, every- crisis control. Yeah, everything's remote these days. I think you you find to stay where you are. Yeah, yeah, and I can zoom in whatever they need. Uh, that was, man, that was like such a two thousands ass thing to happen, where it's just like, okay, man, yeah, we did the battle. That's why people came here. But now for the hard part, spin baby. Like that was <laughs> yeah. that was such a two thousands thing, and that was kind of what like made everything feel a bit more real. Like that felt just like such like a post nine eleven thing right where it's like doing the thing isn't enough but you have to present the thing that you did in like an easily digestible way so that like it appears like a win like it's not enough to just do the right thing but you have to package it and and sell it to an audience so that they buy that it was the right thing you know and that is just 2004 marvel stuff 
just through and through. I mean, it translates to the movies, right? Because I think a big thing that has made their movies so successful is the fact that they've got kind of a human element to it and the humor that's involved in all of them nowadays. You don't necessarily see the super serious all the time, just straight hardcore action. There's a lot of comedy involved in it as well. Yeah, that's a great point. All right. You ready to talk about issue three? Yes, and I do want to say that the cover for this issue is pretty badass. As a guy that doesn't know much about X-Men, but growing up always liked Wolverine, it's mm-hmm. a pretty badass cover. You want to you describe the cover to the audience? I don't think I've ever done that, actually, like on a, on a okay. podcast. I should probably start. Yeah, so um, the cover is just this big yellow backsplash, uh, backsplash and you see kind of like um, highlights or lights coming, and you just see Wolverine diving down. Uh, I'm assuming I'm viewing this as a me looking up at Wolverine here and mm-hmm. the, the claws are out. He's in the old school uniform, you know, hairy, muscular man, uh, looking menacing teeth, gr- gritting, ready to kick some ass. Can't you just see that on like a lunchbox and like oh, a notebook absolutely. and a backpack and like a thermos and just everything. <laughs> yes, absolutely. God, yeah um that with the you know the plastic ones with the little plastic snap to make sure that uh mom's little i love you honey note stays in there yeah gotta keep it safe protect the note at all costs issue three came out july 28th 2004 again john cassidy hitting that schedule love to see it Kitty is on the green of Xavier Mansion talking to a student. He tells her about when he first learned to fly. He broke his legs on his first landing, but learned how to control his power. It became infinitely important to him. He's scared he's going to lose it because of this cure, and she assures him he won't. Quote, mutants are a community. We're people, she says, and there's no way anybody can make us be what they want. We stick together and don't panic or overreact. You'll see we're stronger than this. The student calls her a hard R. Because of her optimism. And man, does that not age well. He's skeptical, sure. Like, I get that. But man, that is just jarring to see. Certainly wasn't expecting that one. And it definitely took me back uh, with today's day and age and uh, what we view as acceptable. Yeah. No hard R's in comics, please. That's uh, <laughs> let's, leave, no. let's leave that one behind. I understand it was 2004 is a different time. But also, I don't know, man. I was 14. I didn't use that word. <laughs> you know? <laughs> All right. Uh, A news report on TV shows us the front of Benetech, the pharmaceutical that announced the cure for mutants. And there are 1600 people lined up waiting for their chance to be rid of mutantdom. Emma tells Kitty just in from counseling and wondering how much attention the human body can endure that dozens of students were missing from her ethics class, that this cure news is tearing the school apart. All Kitty has to say is, oh, my God, you teach ethics. So this these two pages here. Um, depressingly hit very close to home with what's going on in the world right now with the pandemic. Oh my God. Yeah. uh, You know, and the vaccine and everything it's the image here. And to describe to listeners, I mean, you literally see a huge line with people holding hands and waiting to get into this towering building um, where they're hoping they can get help here. And Mm. you see a little kid, you know, holding his parents' hand and he looks really depressed. And I'm just thinking of all the kids that can't be at school with their friends and how then there's a split between people and what they think needs to be done. And I don't know if this was done on purpose, George, with your curation, but it 
does definitely hit close to home. This had nothing to do with my curation. This was just, this was the big X-Men comic at the time. And uh, yeah, man, it, it's funny how many parallels there are between then and now. It's weird because like throughout this run, like it almost feels like they're taking like an anti-vaccine stance, yep. you know, <laughs> like because yeah. they don't want this injection, um, which is not something I agree with in our current climate. <laughs> yeah. But I understand what they're talking about. There's one scene in particular coming up where uh, we'll we'll really call attention to the, the crux of everything and yeah. why they're standing against this this mutant cure. I do feel like the X-Men would probably say wear a mask. Yeah, yeah, as, right. as they as they do when they do their uh, job functions. That's a good point. Yeah, they're extracurriculars. Yeah, Beast enters the teacher's lounge exhausted. He's been studying a sample of the cure that Doctor Rao gave him all night and should have results by the end of the day. Cut back to Benetech, and Ord of Breakworld is losing his mind on Doctor Rao. How could you give them a sample of the cure? He freaks. "Quote: You know what the X Men are to me." Dr. Rao calmed him down, saying they were bound to get a hold of it sooner or later. She didn't give it to anyone but an old colleague and that he needs to stop talking like a supervillain. She immediately admonishes him for his tactics the other night, using armed mercenaries to take hostages. They keep talking and Ord is threatening her at every turn and just meeting this dude with comeback after comeback. She's not even showing off. She's just smart and right and assures him that she doesn't care about his petty bullshit. She has grander aspirations. She looks over a playing Tildy in her observation room, and we have no reason to not take Dr. Rao at face value. She doesn't want to destroy the mutant race. She wants to give an option to people who don't feel comfortable with their powers. On the deck of a shield helicarrier, Scott talks to Nick Fury, who confirms the kick-ass guns the mercs were using the other night were, in fact, experimental models created by S.H.I.E.L.D., Fury is beside himself that this stuff has gotten out, but as we've learned from events like Secret War, which hasn't happened yet, this dude is hardly an airtight lid. So my first thing when I saw this, I was screaming to myself, Solid Snake is in a Marvel comic, and quickly learned that that was Nick Fury, as somebody that's main knowledge of Nick Fury is from the movies. This is surely not Samuel L. Jackson. It is not, no. So Samuel Jackson got his looks in the movie. Like Samuel Jackson was cast in the movies because there was a comic book called The Ultimates, which was like, what if the Avengers happened today in the year 2001, 2000, instead of 1960? And it's one of the best comics I think Marvel made in that decade, if not ever. And, uh, the Nick Fury in that book is a bald black man with an eye patch over his eye. And there's actually one scene where they're talking about like, if they were to be cast in a movie, who would they want to play them? And like, he literally says Samuel Jackson oh, that's in the comics. Yeah. And so years later, uh, when Joss Whedon, actually the person who wrote this comic, uh, wrote the Avengers and directed the Avengers. Yeah, man, it was, uh, everything coming full circle when that now, happened. <laughs> where? So, is that what you were saying? The, the, the Manhattan stuff, we don't know yet? What went No, the, we know the Manhattan stuff. So uh, the thing I said, like we've talked about what something that happens to Fury eventually called Secret War. Okay. Where he's kind of outed to be like a, a war criminal. And then he's kind of just like on the run after that. And uh, steps down as head of S.H.I.E.L.D. Maria Hill steps in. That's Robin Sherbatsky from How I Met Your Mother. She becomes a new acting head of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, and so the Manhattan thing he's referring to is, oh God, where, where are my notes? Um, all right. I'm actually, I'm about to get to that. 
so I, I'm looking ahead of my script. Fury starts throwing accusations that this Ord might not be an alien, but might be a mutant. Scott is pissed when all of a sudden Fury puts him in place. He says he's only there as a courtesy to Xavier, who says Scott is in charge now, but reminds him he hasn't earned the right to be in his face about any of this yet. He says, quote, if you think anybody here is losing sleep over whether or not you mutants might all suddenly lose your powers, then you ain't been to Manhattan lately which is a direct reference to the penultimate story from Morrison's new X-Men run where Magneto staged a revolt at Xavier's and used radicalized mutants to lead an army that took over Manhattan while killing thousands of New Yorkers in the process. If that sounds confusing, uh, it is. Marvel was retconning that story in the middle of it because they didn't want such a prominent character to be a domestic terrorist. And the whole thing is a mess that we will sort out in a later episode of Short Box. Um, Super confusing storytelling that was happening there. Lots of twists and turns and, and double double facades that were happening. I don't love it. You can tell what the story was supposed to be, and it makes so much more sense, and it's a better story. But that's not the story we got. Uh, just the story we can we can talk about. And can you give me some details? Like, where is this meeting actually taking place? I'm not familiar with the location. This is on a helicarrier, so like a giant floating aircraft carrier, like they have in the movies. They're just in like a what looks like a loading bay. And is this a shield thing or this is a shield thing? Yeah. Okay. And shield at the time, I think was like a UN peacekeeping task force, but it, we talked about this before. It's kind of a tennis ball where it just goes on one side. Shield is like a UN peacekeeping task force on another. It's just like an extension of the U S like federal government where it's just like a superhero FBI basically. Okay. And so like it, it goes back and forth all the time. And honestly, it's really hard to keep up with like when they're serving the world and when they're serving the United States. And it's also a mess because it changes so much and really just like serves the story that the, uh, the creative team is trying to tell. Anyways, with tensions high fury, tells Cyclops that they hear anything about Ord, they'll let him know. And uh, he boots him off the carrier. A green haired woman emerges from the shadows behind fury and asks, what do you think he knows? We have no idea who she is. She's human. She just has green hair. Wolverine confronts Beast back at the mansion, who says the sample of the mutant cure looks promising. Beast doesn't destroy it as Wolverine orders him to, and Beast rolls his ass, launching him into the ceiling. Wolverine says he doesn't care if some freshman wants the cure, but if an actual X-Men wants it, then it's an invitation for mutants to be, quote, neutered. They go into an all-out brawl and start fighting through walls. They're fighting in front of students when all of a sudden they get the psychic suggestion to stop, bow, and treat it like a performance by Emma Frost, who threatens to make them tango with each other if they don't stop on their own accord. This There's another teacher's meeting. This is definitely one of those panels you were talking about with it's just the solid color and and them fighting you know, in front of it where you can see the choreography of the fight, and I thought that was so cool. Oh, it's gorgeous. Yeah. Cassidy, man. So, so incredibly talented. Also the way they do it where they don't have the boxes, you know, like the borders around the panels. Yeah. Yeah, That was really cool. Incredibly cool. It's weird how just like removing such a thin black line does so much to the art, but it, it really does. There's another teacher's meeting in the danger room made to look like a giant unsettling dollhouse to address Beast and Wolverine's immaturity. Scott tells them that Fury says they're on their own and they have to rely on each other. Kitty asks about Professor X and Emma reminds her that he's not here and they have to make their own decisions. A real growing up moment for the team. Beast concludes his research and discovers they're experimenting on some familiar tissue. He says they have to go to Benetech tonight. 
Cyclops thinks he's talking about Jean. Emma looks disappointed. And that's the end of issue three. Whew, this is going to be a long one, Sean. I can feel it. <laughs> but hey, it's a big story. We got a lot to talk about. Issue four from August 25th, 2004. The issue opens with Ord of Breakworld talking about how far he's come and that he can't stop now. Through flashback images, we realize he's genuinely not from here, but we have no idea if it's an alien world or a mutant from the future, since that isn't like out of the question for the X-Men. Even the final story of Morrison's new X-Men run took place way in the future, and some of the most famous X-Men stories of all time deal with time travel, so we still aren't 100% sure if he's an alien or a mutant. Please bear with me. It does seem like he's some sort of extraterrestrial gladiator of some sort. Yeah. I get why you assume that. And uh, spoilers, that's that's correct. He is, in fact, an alien. But, like, man, X-Men are weird. They they figure out so many weird situations to tell stories. And where sometimes it is someone coming back from the year 4500, and it's like a post-apocalyptic wasteland, you know? Or it is them on, like, an intergalactic tour. Like, the, the X-Men are very flexible they they can do everything <laughs> the x-men are assembled and getting onto the jet they hop in and head to benetech they manage to sneak in and disable security back at the mansion the flying mutant who used a hard r on kitty uh is talking to another student a young woman named hisako we learned the flying mutant is named wing uh and hisako is not the least bit surprised he got as much attention as he did they're talking shit to each other, exchanging gossip, typical high school stuff. When they turn the corner, an order of break world is there, and he seems ready to unleash the herd on them. Back at Benetech, Emma and Scott are bickering because Scott's heart races every time Gene is mentioned. Wolverine and Beast are bickering because he doesn't think Beast should give up his identity. Kitty finds a strange material, a weird metal that doesn't seem to have an end to it, and she just starts sinking, using her power to phase through matter, trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Back at the mansion... Ord is terribly embarrassed to find out the X-Men aren't there, and these kids have no idea where they went. They aren't told about missions, they just know when the jet takes off. Ord is pissed, but once he finds out they're mutants, he gets a weird shit-eating grin on his face. But before he can do anything, Hisako tells the boy to leave a weird sort of invisible armor encases Hisako, and she knocks Ord clear on his ass through a wall. Wing has flown up above the school when Ord suddenly appears and injects him with something. He gives him a message to tell the X-Men that they'll never be a threat to Breakworld. And then Wing comes crashing back down to the mansion. So this made me wonder, with all the technology that the X-Men seem to have and stuff like that, somewhat facetiously and also asking seriously, do they have any sort of security system around the school to, to try and deter something like this from happening? They do generally, yeah. And like they're especially uh, like when in, all the adults are off campus, you would think. Yeah, and in theory there should be more like I, I don't know. I feel like there's like probably around 150 students. And so like there's what five people on the X-Men team right now. Like, that seems like pretty large class sizes. Like, you know, you're not gonna get like a, a good yeah. a, a good like thesis level course there. Um and if, if I'm a student, I'm kinda loving it when bad shit's going down in the city because then that means all the teachers are gone. I can run around and do whatever the hell I want. Yeah. No chaperones, man. No, no, no sleep till Brooklyn. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> uh, you'd think there'd be security. Also, I think that just goes to show like how powerful Ward is and how sneaky good he is at his job. Back at Benetech, Beast, Wolverine, Cyclops, and Emma find a dead mutant with cuts on her wrist to indicate she took her own life, but Wolverine is skeptical. He points out how shady this whole thing is, and they should just blow it all to hell. Cyclops doesn't want to be too hasty. He wants to look around more. 
Emma has a meltdown. She says she's getting a psychic alarm from the Stepford Cuckoos, powerful young mutant psychic women from the school who Emma took a real shine to in Morrison's run on New X-Men. Just as she says they need to go back, armed guards break into the morgue the X-Men were convening in and throw more bullets than most Sylvester Stallone movies at our heroes. We cut to Kitty, who has just phased through so much weird alien material she doesn't understand. She's genuinely concerned it did permanent damage to her. She comes across an armed security detail who says they captured everyone upstairs. They say, quote, we can't let anyone near the subject. And Kitty is more determined than ever to find out what's really going on there. She's shot at by the security team and the bullets phase through her before hitting something metallic behind her. She's in her phase shift mode and from the shadows, Colossus rises. He runs through Kitty, who in complete shock and disbelief at what she's seeing, he attacks and disables the security team and Kitty calms him down before he kills them. He comes to his senses and changes from his metal form back to his flesh form. He collapses in front of her and on his knees wraps his arms around her, saying, God, God, please, am I finally dead? He thinks he's in heaven seeing her face again. That is the end of issue four. Whew, how cool was that scene where Kitty is just staring at Colossus and he just runs through her? To yeah, I thought her. I thought those last few pages were really awesome. It it, it kind of goes to what I was saying about the different art styles. He really the last few pages, it's pretty much just red and black, right? I mean, yeah, it, and I think that that's really cool. Uh, it kind of not only is it yes, they're sneaking around this laboratory, and so you know they might have the red security lights, but it it just kind of all adds into the whole mood of the the espionage that they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and yeah, that that image when he runs through her and she's just like mortified and shocked and really cool. Oh, incredible stuff. Really good pacing. You know, like I, I feel like it's really hard to do timing in a comic book. And so when it's mm-hmm. done really well, you notice it. And there's I've I talked about pacing before on previous episodes, like Spider-Man leaving in the, the new Avengers issue. Uh, where like it's just God. Sometimes like the timing of things is just sequenced perfectly, and this is absolutely one of those pages. I will share it from the uh, Twitter account when this episode goes live. The following page too, I thought too, like the the one where they the one panel of her yelling out Peter, mm-hmm. you know, saying Peter. The, just that shot was really really cool. And another thing that he does well, I really well, I think, are the close up shots. Um, he really seems to nail down like the close-ups of these character faces it, it looks really cool the shading is awesome um just does definitely you can get in touch with the, their emotions that they have yeah uh, issue five came out september 22nd 2004 this was two weeks into my freshman year of high school where were you september 22nd 2004 you remember September 22nd, 2004 was definitely the first few weeks of seventh grade for me. So um, was trying to look as cool in a school uniform as possible. Um, my mom was very liberal with my haircuts and letting me usually have a pretty cool haircut at the start of the year or end of the year. And I believe that was the time that David Beckham's faux hawk was really cool. So I was trying to mimic him and also getting in uh-huh. trouble with school for having a faux hawk. For having a faux hawk. How dare you? All right. We're going to take a quick break from the X-Men because, Sean, I know you love music. I do. Is that is that your number one passion? Your number yes. one creative yes. passion? Okay. All right. Number 10 on Billboard's Hot 100, September 22nd, 2004. You ready? All right. 
All right. Locked Up by Akon featuring Styles P. Oh, great song. Number nine, Dip It Low by Christina Milian. Another good one. And also, where has she been? That's a good point. That's actually a great point. As someone who loves just super effeminate pop from the 2000s, really of all time, actually. Like, I don't know why I need to single out the 2000s. Uh, yeah, we need more Christina Milian in our lives. Eight, was She Will Be Loved by Maroon 5. Also so good. Seven was Slow Motion by Juvenile featuring Soldier Slim. (laughs) Six was Turn Me On by Kevin Little featuring Spraga Benz. Five was Pieces of Me by Ashley Simpson. And I'm a pieces, pieces, pieces of me. The the also the very infamous SNL performance with that song. Oh, that's right. With lip syncing, which uh, God just torpedoed her career. It really did. But it's funny. We're only halfway through this list. And a lot of these have already had a resurgence on TikTok, I've realized. Uh, are they really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I don't have a TikTok, so I'm not the person to to, to make that judgment. But that's uh, interesting to hear. I rarely go on it, except I get TikToks from my girlfriend all the time. So I've, I'm learning what's cool with the kids. Gotcha. Number four, My Place by Nelly featuring uh, Jaheem. Three, Sunshine by Lil Flip featuring Leia. Number two, Lean Back by Terror Squad. Now that I will tell you, I definitely know where I was then because I my school was right outside of my neighborhood. And every day, those first few weeks of that school year, I remember listening to that on my Rio MP3 player. I don't know okay. if you remember those, but it held about 22 songs. But Lean Back and then the Lean Back remix were two of those 22 songs. And I would listen to them on the way back from school every day with my cool little Sonys behind the back of the head headphones thinking I was the man. Okay. Hot damn. Ready for the number one song? Let's hear it. Goodies by Ciara featuring Petey Pablo. I distinctly remember our seventh grade dance in the school gym with that song. Yeah, buddy. I remember just loving that music video. God, yeah. Remember Fuse? How it was just pop punk and oh, yeah, yeah. and billboard rap. Oh, God. Golden time. Uh, really quick, too, just because I love doing this stuff, and I'm really sorry that I'm doing this stuff. But number 10 movie at the box office, Garden State. Number nine, oh, Napoleon awesome. Dynamite. Number eight, Collateral. Number seven, Without a Paddle. Number six was Hero. Number five, Mr. 3000. Number four was Wimbledon. Number three was Cellular. Number two was Resident Evil Apocalypse. And number one, Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. Jeez, what a list. I mean, Academy Awards be damned. This is all you need here. The only one I don't remember is Cellular. Do you remember that one? I'm like 99% sure... You remember that movie Phone Booth with Colin with Farrell? With Colin Farrell, yes. Yeah, the Joel Schumacher movie. It was basically that except on a cell phone. Okay, now I kind of remember it. The other thing is I tried to watch Without a Paddle a couple of years ago. It doesn't hold up as well as I remember it. No, no, it really, really doesn't. I do. The one thing I love about that movie is that it's like all about D.B. Cooper, like the guy who like yeah. stole a whole bunch of money and then just jumped out of a plane and, and no one knew what happened to him. Yeah. What a uh, list, though. That, cellular, I mean, the movie, is with Kim Basinger and Jason Statham. 
and it's like he gets a call and like there's been a kidnapping and it's like up to him to rescue the woman who's been kidnapped who called that must have been pretty early in his action movie career then huh I think so, but it was also like because he did a lot of like European feeling movies, right, you know, right, like the right, like right. the transporter and like the mechanic and stuff. So I I can't say I actually know enough about Jason Statham's career to really uh to really comment on where that came up in his in his wheelhouse. Well, now I have. But man, memory. what an eclectic list of music and movies, right? I mean, it really that really does define some of the early two thousands. And and if you see some of, it's funny because we're going into this fifth issue here and the cover art of it is kind of it embodies kind of what the the music in the movies that we were just talking about (laughs) you want to explain the cover so it almost looks feels to me like it could be a metallica cover um Mm -hmm. and it's very very 90s you you see the big metal fist um coming over X-Men, which is in all different kinds of font jumbled together with outlines kind of going everywhere. Um, it, it's kind of like a in your face, like badass metal fist going through. Yeah. It's literally the fist of Colossus destroying the logo of the book. Yeah. And it is awesome. I mean, yeah, this was like right around, this is probably like a year after Metallica's St. Anger album came out. Okay. So yeah. It feels, feels appropriate yeah I, I could definitely see this on some t-shirts oh for sure all right back to the comic scott is dying going through all kinds of mental hell emma tells the guards who shot him that he's bleeding out and needs medical attention and they could not give fewer shits back at the school a student named joshua foley better known as elixir because of his extremely potent healing powers is doing his best to help wing after his big crash the students are trying to figure out what to do since they can't reach emma psychically anymore Kitty is talking to Colossus, and she says she needs a minute, both physically, because phasing through that weird alien metal took a lot out of her, and emotionally, because seeing an ex-boyfriend back from the dead sounds pretty exhausting in a way I can't even begin to comprehend. She still isn't sure it's the real Peter Rasputin in front of her, since she carried his ashes to Russia and spread them uh, per his last wishes. He thanks her, and he's pretty sure he isn't a ghost. (laughs) Comics are so dumb, I love them. They want to get out, but he admits the only thing he knows is the room, a place where they did tests and experiments on him, uh, but kept him strong. She confirms that he didn't die in vain, and he did save mutants from the legacy virus, but he's been there apparently ever since. So three years real time, and I have no idea how long that is in terms of the comics. Like, I don't know if that's six months. I don't know if that's a year. Just because it's really hard to judge comics because like you can have a six issue thing that takes six months in real life right but like it could happen over the course of one night in the story so very confusing figuring out the timelines upstairs dr rao shows up and immediately starts helping the injured mutants despite the reservations of the security team holding them at gunpoint she's doing her best but emma is probably rightfully giving her shit the whole time what's next she says eliminating the gay gene Homosexuals don't represent a threat to human existence, rebuts Dr. Rao. Emma drops the mic when she says, quote, we're clearly watching different televangelists then. And that's, I think, the most clear metaphor in the series is that to date by, about why the X-Men are both important to readers and pissed as characters about the emergence of this cure. Whew. Emma phases out of her diamond form and her psychic communicating is back up. Everyone's talking and making a plan. Hank grabs Dr. Rao by the throat and knows she's operating on someone he cares about. He's too smart to not know. 
He asks about the dead girl on the morgue table, and she tries to say she's doing the right thing. Suddenly, the X-Men fight back and just kick the shit out of the guards. They deactivate their psychic scramblers, and Emma rewrites their interpretation of events. She erases their memory, orders them to the nearest hospital, and makes it so if they hear the words parsley, intractable, or longitude, they'll vomit uncontrollably for 48 hours. That's not important to the story. I just think it's a neat use of her powers. Um, so one thing here, George, is this beast seems pretty cool and collected so far through the past few issues. Mm-hmm. Is this kind of emotional reaction something that is typical for him or is this just really triggering? Yeah, so Beast is going through a thing called a secondary mutation where he was a mutant. He just had like really big features, right? Like he had like unhuman like large feet and hands and he was called the Beast. And then he turned blue. And then they're like, oh, that's this weird. Like they talked about that, I think, in X-Men, not first class, but like whatever came out second. Or actually, it was first class where he like tried to experiment on himself and inadvertently turned himself blue. And so he looked pretty human in his like blue form for a while. But then he started going through a second mutation after that, where he started turning into like a lion, basically. So that's why he has so many cat like features. Okay. And so he is like already hates himself because of his giant appendages, his giant limbs. And then he starts hating himself even more because he turns blue. And now he's like really hating himself because he's like turning into a cat and he feels like he's becoming like an animal and less like a man. And that's like really getting him down. And so he is going through a lot in this story, especially as he confronts Dr. Rao, because this cure is something that he thinks he really wants. Like he just wants to be normal. You know, like he just wants to have like, a relationship, but like doesn't think anyone will love him because he's just a giant blue cat man. And can you imagine I'm here to tell a... him? I'm here to tell him that that's just not true. I think he, <laughs> you would, if he were real, he would set the internet on fire. Someone that smart who also looks like a giant cat man, God, heartthrob. Yeah, he. I mean, he's an attractive cat man, first of all. Um, Look, oh God, do you remember in Japan like that uh, that gorilla that everyone thought was so handsome because he just had like such a square jaw and like such <laughs> like a, a like a defined face. <laughs> I think, could you imagine being a dog person and then it turns out that your mutation is a cat? That must really suck. Yeah, I feel like that's just a lot to go through, you know? Uh, They decide to burn the lab down, but Dr. Rao says that's of no use. She's already sent samples to hundreds of labs and the cure, something she's calling hope, can't be stopped now. All of a sudden, Ord comes crashing through the wall, ready to fight the X-Men, but they're stopped cold in their tracks. Ord thinks it's because he's a mighty warrior, but nah. It's because they see former co-worker Colossus appear right behind him. In a moment of comedy rips right out of, or rather placed into, the MCU, Ord thinks the dragon Lockheed is behind him, about to unleash hell, but it's Colossus. Punching the small of Ord's back so hard, I'm honestly shocked he'll ever walk again. He just starts hammering on Ord, saying he's not made of steel, he's made of rage. He's literally about to kill Ord. Wolverine tells him to. He's like, go for it. End this. Uh, When Nick Fury shows up with a full commando platoon of S.H.I.E.L.D. agents and shuts them all down. Issue six, last last issue. These are definitely some of the coolest pages that I've seen before. Oh, Um, my God. So well choreographed, so well timed, so well sequenced. Yeah. From Ord breaking through, uh, I love how the art kind of filters into some of the next panels there. Mm -hmm. Um. And then j- just kind of the close-ups back and forth between Wolverine and Ord. And then, y- like you said, that bit, that big one where he gets punched in the back is really cool. Yeah. 
Also, man, I love the way Wolverine is drawn, like, in these books, man. Like, I love the way all the characters are drawn. Where, like, Wolverine especially, just because, like, the mask covers up, like, what, the top half of his face. And there's, yeah. like, almost no detail there. But then there's so much detail put into his mouth. You know, like, it's just the balance between those two things is just, like, it's so much fun to look at. Yeah, and I think that they convey a lot of his emotions through his mouth. On, yeah. You know, th- through what his teeth are doing and everything. And that's really cool. Yeah, it is. Whew. All right. You ready for issue six? Let's do it. Yeah, let's freaking do it, man. Let's light this firecracker. November 3rd, 2004, issue six comes out. A black and white page shows a flashback, a first meeting between Ord and Dr. Rao. He hands her information and research that blows her away. We learn how close she was to solving the legacy virus. She says she needs, or sorry, she says he needs to talk to Hank McCoy, the beast, since this is way more his wheelhouse, but he doesn't want to. He wants Rao. She says she'll work with him, but she'll not be party to murder. He asked for the file on Tildy Soames from Surprise, Surprise, the same green-haired woman Fury was talking to back in issue three. And we learned this chartreuse shaded woman is named Agent Brand, and she's working with Ord. Cut back to the present, and Fury has stopped the X-Men from wrecking Ord, saying he has diplomatic immunity and is to be protected. Fury is so confused by the presence of Colossus that he's shocked they even care about Ord. But once they prove they know he's the genuine article, he orders Brand to explain why Ord, of all people, has shield diplomatic immunity. We learned that the heads, uh, sorry, we learned that she is the head of the Sentient World's Observation and Response Department, appropriately acronymed SWORD, uh, and protects the Earth from extraterrestrial threats. Just as it seems we're about to get an answer on why Ord is safe, mutants looking for the cure break in and send everything to hell, splitting up the people there. Fury and his team try to contain them, non-lethally, of course, because they're civilians, and Nick Fury might be a war criminal. Still a relatively good guy. Still generally, still nicer than not nice, despite absolutely being a war criminal. Ord breaks away, heading for Tildy. The X-Men manage to snag Agent Brand and get her to finish her story. Turns out Ord's people have a gift that lets them see partial visions of the future. And they saw their world dying because of a mutant, specifically because of an X-Man. She says Ord showed up with a declaration of war, but the cure was a compromise to save his planet and protect Earth from an interstellar fight. Dr. Rao comes rushing in, deathly afraid that Ord has kidnapped Tildy. He's gone to the sub-basement where Colossus was, and Brand freaks out, telling Fury to evacuate his men because Ord is about to bounce. He's taken all the research, all the work on the serum, so now he can weaponize it. And he's blasting off on his ship, which was, ta-da, the sub-basement of weird material Kitty didn't understand. It's been a minute, but Wolverine calls for one of the oldest plays in the playbook, the Fastball Special. And Colossus hurls Wolverine as fast and hard as he can at Ord's escaping ship. Ord is being incredibly dickish to Tildy, who's in the ship's cockpit with him, telling her her nightmares will never stop and all the hurt he's about to unleash on Earth for having mutants in the first place. Suddenly, adamantium claws pop through the windshield and the hands behind them are made into a fist that goes right into Ord's mouth. He says, you bite, I heal. I pop, you won't. Ord has no choice. He lands the ship. 
Ord is taken away and everyone is ripping Brand a new one when Fury defends her and says she's working on a bigger stage than anyone could imagine. Later at the mansion, Cyclops and Beast are talking about how Rao's research is set back months by their recent mission at Benetech, but there are riots in every major city by mutants who want the cure. But having Colossus back feels like something of a win at the very least. Cyclops asks Hank if he's going to use the sample he has on himself, and he doubles down saying, no, an X-Man doesn't quit, not with the world watching. Emma overlooks the mansion's greens where Colossus and Kitty are being all kinds of adorable, talking about how fate brought them back together, and that's why Kitty is back, at least she believes. Emma is torn between finding it sweet and repulsive when someone in the shadows says his return threatens their plans. Emma says he's nothing, she's still the real threat, and that they'll deal with her first. And that is the end astonishing x-men volume one gifted issues one through six your first x-men story sean how do, how are we feeling at the end of it well whew, that ending in my notes here i just have in all caps who the hell is frost talking to yeah <laughs> and that definitely wants to want makes me want to keep reading after that uh really really cool story i liked it a lot um I have one quick question before we get to the more general stuff here about it, but um, a few pages back, uh, Frost called Fury Burke. Am I missing something of why she called him that? Is that another name for him? Um, It was when they were talking uh, in the room before Ord came through. I think she calls him a Burke, which is British for a stupid person. Oh, there you go. Which again is weird because she like grew up in Massachusetts. So like, I don't, uh, God, that's a mess. We got to, we got to get to the bottom of Emma Frost. (laughs) That makes sense. But yeah, I think it was, I mean, it's really cool for me. The X-Men knowledge I had other than the movies was definitely like cartoons when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And this kind of had that same feel um, in terms of the action and some of the quips and stuff like that, but also leaned more into more of the modern stuff, which is what I've been reading. Yeah. I mean, I think this really set the tone for, for X-Men at least for like the first like 20 years (laughs) of, of, of the century X-Men have recently had like their biggest status quo change ever. And probably like the best X-Men run since, Grant Morrison's run in 2001 uh, a story called house of X and powers of X. I have incredible I stuff. Yet. Oh man. Incredible stuff coming out of the X-Men books right now from Marvel house of X powers of X is like a 12 part story uh, two six issue series that you alternate again. That's like one of my pet peeves of comics where it's just like, Hey, if you need to read two six issue miniseries, you need to alternate between each issue. Why don't you just make it like a 12 issue long maxi series and just have one title, just have, just have one title. And I get, I get why it's two different titles, but it's so much more annoying than just making it one title. It's, I digress, but it is the best X Men comics have been since Astonishing X Men. Yeah, the the comic industry seems a little ADD like that, um, where we they're jumping from one thing to another, especially with what you were describing with the X Men stuff. But that may be why I why I gravitate towards it. 
Yeah, man, there was one volume of Amazing Spider-Man between 64, 65, whenever it started. In 1998, there was one volume of Amazing Spider-Man. And then in 1998, there was volume two of Amazing Spider-Man. And then that eventually went back to the old numbering of volume one. And that lasted until, I don't know, issue 800, I think, or issue 700 of Amazing Spider-Man. Then there was like some weird spinoff series called Superior Spider-Man when Spider-Man and Doc Ock switched bodies. Super dumb, super confusing, really fun comics. But like, again, it's just like, okay, we we're here for Peter. And then since then, there have been like eight different relaunches of Amazing Spider-Man with like a brand new like issue number one. And like, I personally find that a little momentum killing, you know, where it's just like, Mm -hmm. okay, we just had a run of, I think, 80 issues of Amazing Spider-Man. They just announced a brand new Amazing Spider-Man. One is coming out in like April or something. And that's cool. It's a good jumping on point, but also it's like, man, so like you're telling me that the 80 issues I just read of Amazing Spider-Man are now no longer as important as this new number one I'm about to read. Like that's, it feels like a little bit like a slap in the face. And I think this book mitigates that by being a new, a completely new book, you know, where like yeah. it doesn't, doesn't disregard the other two uncanny X-Men and adjective list X-Men book as it was called. Uh, it's just supplemental to it. And it's the big premiere book, uh, but you're still getting cool stories about cool people in those other books. Uh, this was just uh, the most important one that was happening. And in fact, when you see the X-Men in other comics, they're always dressed up like this. Like when you hear that the X-Men are coming, it is this team that shows up in other books. That's cool. What, yeah. So what was I, the... I think this is way more respectful than, what was the than res- just relaunching the reception of this at the time, you know, that these came out, you know, and what, and what is it like now retrospectively? It blew people away when it came out. Uh, John Cassidy, as I alluded to earlier, was working on a book called planetary, which might be my favorite comic book of all time. Like that book I think is just incredible. It's basically just like a survey of every major pop culture phase and talks about if it were real. And there's this team of people who are the archeologists of the hidden history of the world. And it's just them trying to make the world a better place while navigating like Hong Kong ghost revenge stories and, you know, Kaiju stories from Japan and uh, like old Westerns and stuff. Like it's just them navigating every different stereotype of a story. John Cassidy drew the shit out of that book, but there were so many delays because the writer was very sick and Joss Whedon was like nerd God at the time, you know, like he had Buffy, he had, was it Spike and Angel and uh, this was like, I think just before Dollhouse had come out, but it was after Firefly, which, you know, everyone just like laments, like only having, you know, right. one season, 13 episodes, whatever. So he could like do no wrong. And in fact, he was so successful on this book that he managed to like launch like the Buffy line of comics, which continued the story of Buffy from the TV show just as a comic book. And uh, everyone was just like, oh, man, what a home run between this and the art. Like, it's just like one of the best books Marvel is producing. And I think Joss Whedon's reputation in the waning years aside, I think it still holds up. And I think it's really cool that it's like a relatively self-contained story. Like Ord was a villain created just for this. And it sort of undid what people thought was a mistake of killing Peter and Colossus, which nothing in a comic is really a mistake. Like everything can be undone. So if you ever get really upset about something, just just wait 15 minutes and I'm sure it'll be different the next time you revisit it. Uh, But it, it was just such like a beloved book. I think the second arc of this comic is really interesting. It does something pretty unique 
And then the third arc, I think, is really confusing if you're not like a big X-Men fan. And like I hadn't read every I haven't I hadn't read very much X-Men when I'd come across it. And I was so confused. So that was like one of the first Wikipedia like rabbit holes I fell down was like trying to understand Astonishing X-Men like 13 through 18 I was just trying to figure that crap out. Yeah. And so I'm I'm already looking forward to those scripts where I have to do a lot of uh, a lot of research on all these people just to bring everyone up to speed. And this book like was very very much a sequel to Grant Morrison's New X-Men. And that is why I constantly had to reference them as I was talking because so many plot points were picked up immediately after that run ended. And it is just now more clear than ever that I need to go back and do a deep dive on, on Morrison's new X-Men. So look forward to that in the future. But this is a story, Sean, you'd never read an X-Men comic before. And you were able to follow, right? You had a couple questions, but all things considered, like this was a good jumping on point, right? Yeah, definitely. And and I only read it once. And going through kind of as you recap some of the stuff, it hit me with a, oh, you know, that makes sense kind of thing like that. So I think... If this is for a new reader, if they take their time with it and just have some basic, very basic knowledge of X-Men of, you know, this is a team of people. There's, you know, the school for mutants and stuff like that. Like, I think people can grasp onto this one easily. Um, Definitely had some questions about who was sleeping with who, (laughs) who was romancing who, but. um, The soap opera part of it, yeah. Yeah, which actually to me is my favorite part of it all. But um but I thought this was awesome. It was a really cool jumping off point. Uh, being a millennial is really cool. Seeing them in the old school, you know, costumes and stuff like mm-hmm. that. Um, or what we, th- what I think I would typically think is the old school costumes. Yeah. Very, um, very classic interpretation. Yeah. Modernized, but like ve- wears its inspirations very plainly. Yeah. So that, so that was really, really cool. And as, you know, we discussed I'm a, a nerd with in multiple mediums and with the announcement of the new Wolverine and stuff, the new Wolverine game coming out. I'm hoping they look at this Wolverine from from these comics as as an inspiration. I'm really excited to talk more about Astonishing X-Men with you because there's like one panel that is just burned into my brain from I want to say it was like issue 23 or something of this comic. Well, I'm certainly going to keep reading, so. Very cool. Well, we'd love to have you back to talk about more Astonishing X-Men. You could be my Astonishing X-Men correspondent, if that's cool with you going forward. Absolutely. All right. Well, I think that about wraps us up. Any any final notes you want to share? Um, No, just, I mean, this is a very cool, like we said, 90s, 2000s, lunchbox, uh, badass X-Men with awesome art, um, be it horny at times. And uh, I thought it was really, really cool. So thank you for introducing me to this. Yeah. One thing I think John Cassidy did really well, and it's something that Brian Hitch really did well. Another artist who was at Marvel at the time working on the aforementioned book, The Ultimates. Um, They didn't draw a lot of square panels. They drew a lot of like page width panels and so that i think just gave it like a really cinematic presentation where like it felt like you were looking at a widescreen tv yeah which were sort of just becoming popular like if you were if you were really wealthy you could have one you know for your soon to be released xbox 360 and other hd game consoles as they came out 
I, I think that's one thing that I that I'll stress on this is the the art is so cool, and I I read this these issues on an e reader, and doing it in some of the cool fancy you know comic modes that some of these e readers have where it kind of goes panel to panel and and stresses the stuff for you, that really showed through that cinematic way. Um, mm. It was really interesting, and also, um, it it was in some pages organized chaos in the best way. And that was really cool. Well said. Hell yeah. John Cassidy. Good job, buddy. Yes. Uh, well, I think that about wraps us up. Sean, where can people reach you? If you want people to reach you? No, no worries. If, no, uh, if you I, don't. Absolutely. Um, on Twitter and Instagram at Sean and Ella. And if any other gamer nerds are out there and want to team up on any games, uh, at Anella Ice. And I got nothing to say. That's just that's <laughs> a perfect. That's a perfect uh, gamer tag. That's a perfect PSN handle. Goddamn. And uh, Sean, just wanted Sean's George... last name. Sean's last name is Anella. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and George, just want to want to thank you for having me on, and wanted to thank you as one of the main people that has gotten me into this medium. Um, and if anybody needs jumping off points or recommendations george is your guy that is very sweet of you to say we'll see if you still feel that way after i make you read so many more comics i'm just gonna beat the excitement beat the enjoyment right out of you with recommendation after recommendation i'm looking forward to it all right well you can follow the show at purplebird616 where i will be posting updates about the podcast i'll be sharing art i'll be engaging with the medium with the artists with the writers with the colorists as much as i possibly can please share this show if you're listening to this if you've made it this far that means you can find the show that means you can share the show with other people that you think might enjoy it if you have a friend who might want to be dipping their toes into the comics Get them over here. I'd love to talk about that with them. I would love to share what I know about comics. Please find us on your podcatcher of choice and rate us. Uh, like us, subscribe us, leave a leave a review. That'd be super cool. If you have any questions, drop that in the review or just shoot us uh, a little, little DM over on Twitter at PurpleBird616. Thank you so much for listening. And we will be back next week with another episode of Shortbox Summary.